Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to pull it out. You have heard the story that we're going to be looking at today already as Emily read through uh, Luke chapter 2. It's a story that we know, um, but by God's grace, we want to highlight a few things in this narrative. So as you go into this next week of celebrating Christmas with your families or however you are doing that this year, that you have some fresh eyes perhaps to see what is in the scripture. And so um, thank you also, Pastor Tom, for sharing all those care needs and those prayer needs of people within our church. I had the great privilege the last couple, uh, last several days um, to take a couple hours out of my day, a few, a few days to go visit some folks and deliver some gifts uh, to people in our church who are not always able to join us in person because of health concerns and such. And so I just want to say welcome, and uh, it's good to be able to spend time with you, my friends, uh, who are watching on live stream today. Um, for those of you I saw in person this week, it was such a joy and a privilege to be able to just hear your heart and to be able to pray with you and to pray for you. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, may God's grace be with you, And so as we jump into the text today, though, um, we want to come asking God for fresh eyes, uh, to asking God to saying this prayer, and let's pray this together. God, grant us eyes to see your word. God, give us ears to hear your voice. God, give us a heart this morning to love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We thank you for this gift of your word, God, as we open these pages, pages that have been with humanity for many, many years, but pages that are filled with hope and truth, pages that remind us of what is important and what is right, and what it means to live a life in great fullness to our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, for this morning, since we've already read the scripture passage, I want to focus you briefly on one sentence that we're going to come back to a couple of times throughout our morning uh, today. Luke chapter 2. Look with me, please. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, if you would. It says this, and the context is, shepherds are in the field, and angels appear to them, and um, the angels say this, today a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you. Today, a Savior, who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you. Now let's start our story. So, as we have realized and studied as we looked at Luke chapter 1 the last few weeks, Luke chapter 1 is set in the context of King Herod. Luke chapter 1 actually begins in verse 5 with, in the days of King Herod of Judea. Now, what happens in Luke chapter 2 is something different. In Luke chapter 2 verse 1, it's those famous words, in those days of Caesar Augustus, a decree was issued. So in verse 1, there's a slightly different context. Now, they are in Judea. Herod is still king over this area, but the context is greater. It's not just King Herod. It is Caesar. Caesar. Now, Caesar Augustus, um, 
called for a census. Now, a census is a thing that would occur periodically in the ancient period, and one of the primary features of a census is to gather people to the town of their origin, likely places where they own land, because they want to get a count on people, and they want to be able to tax them, <laughs> right? Taxing is one of the main features of why you would gather a census, and taxing is generally based upon land ownership. And so this calls a whole host of people, including Joseph, from where he lived at that current time, which is in Nazareth, in the Galilee, down to the south and a little bit to the west in a place called Bethlehem, where he hailed from. And uh, it's about a 90-mile trip if, if Joseph and Mary avoided Samaria. It would take about three days to, um, to, for them to make this trek. But in the context of going to Bethlehem, they're going to Bethlehem not to appease something of King Herod. They're going there to appease something that the emperor, Caesar Augustus, has called for. He issues a decree over the entire Roman world, which is pretty much most of the world at this time because the Roman Empire was the military might. Now, Caesar Augustus, uh, he's also known, if you're a history kind of person, he's also known as Octavian. So if you kind of think back in that time, he comes right after Julius Caesar. In fact, Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, is, um, he's an heir to the throne after being adopted by his uncle, Julius Caesar. And he rules, he actually has a pretty impressive reign from AD or from 27 BCE to AD 14. He is the sole Roman emperor. And now if you follow any type of kingdoms back in that time, there's a lot of changeover. Sometimes you have these great like 40-year reigns like King David, King Solomon had a good reign. There's other kings in Israel's past and other um, empire pasts that have had good, good reigns. But then you also have those kings that are there for like a year and then they're deposed uh, and, and so on and so forth. See, Octavian though, he, he's very, very influential at this time. He, he doesn't possess the military brilliance of his uncle Julius Caesar, but one writer says he has a talent for ending strife and maintaining peace, which immediately gains him support of the people. And it's actually during this time period where Roman culture enjoyed what is called a golden age, particularly in the areas of literature and architecture, okay? So, so he's known for a, a, a lot of these things, establishing a peace that would pervade throughout all of Judea and even much broader than that, the entire um, known world for the most part at that time. His name... Octavian becomes Caesar, named after his uncle, Julius Caesar, and Augustus. Now, Augustus, we, we, we've talked about names the last couple weeks, and Augustus is a, is a name, and it means exalted one, and it was given to Octavian in 27 BC, the year that he becomes the sole emperor, okay? So he becomes sole emperor, he's called the exalted one. And in this title reflects the practice of emperor worship that had been partly initiated during the reign of his uncle Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, one writer notes, uh, declared himself to be, quote, the unconquered God and the father of the fatherland. And in other words, the picture I want you to get is when, when it says in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, there was worship of this Caesar. He was looked at to be a god, lowercase g, sometimes a bigger case g. People would think very much of him and whatever the emperor said went. 
At this point in time, you wouldn't go against the emperor for fear of your very life being taken from you. And it's in this context that another king is born, and his name is Jesus. Now, Caesar comes to the throne um, through various um, means. He has connections. You know, he's the nephew of Julius Caesar. He has military power and might. He goes on a couple of different conquests to establish his sole emperorship after his uncle dies. Um, he, He establishes power and authority and political connections. But we are faced, just in these first couple verses, with the birth of a different king. Now, if you were to think, how would a king be born? Well, if it was Caesar Augustus's son, you can imagine maybe a decree going out to the city, maybe even to the known world at that time. You, you could imagine that he would have the finest of people to help him, uh, through, help him and his mother through that birthing process. You would know that they would do everything they possibly could to secure his safety. And in the midst of this, you have a different king who's being born who has absolutely none of that but he has something so much greater. Meet Jesus. In Luke chapter one, verses 31 through 33, we didn't look at this in our time, but I'll just make a couple of notes. Uh, The the angel comes to Mary and he gives her a prophecy. The, The angel told her, this is verse 30, he says, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and you'll give birth to a son and you will name his name Jesus. All right? In Greek, it's the word Jesus. In Hebrew, it's the word Yeshua. What does the word mean? You know, Augustus means exalted one. We looked at Zechariah, one whom God remembers. We looked at Elizabeth, one who, who, who um, pledges by God, who has an oath by God. We looked at John last week, means one whom God graces or one whom God favors. Jesus means this. It comes from a Hebrew word, which means to help And it's an intentional name that the angel tells Mary, you are going to name him Jesus. And he tells Joseph, too, in Matthew's gospel. He says, you're going to name this boy Jesus. Why? Well, it's a popular name at the time. The name means to help, but it's an intentional name that describes what this child would do. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 121, the angel tells Joseph, he says, you will name his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, at the outset of Jesus' birth, there is a, um, a communication from heaven. Here is what this young one is going to do. Here is what he is going to be about. And in verse 32, it says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In other words, uh, through his birth and his naming, his humanity is tied to his divinity. He is a son of the Most High. He is fully God, but he is from the line of David, Israel's beloved king. And so he is divine fully and human fully. And in verse 33 of Luke chapter 1, it says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And the hearers would have heard messianic prophecy. There's a fulfillment of a kingdom whose reign will never end. Going all the way back to that time. Now, Caesar, his reign was 41 years as a sole emperor, if my math is correct. If it's not, please don't correct me right now. He reigned 41 years. 
But the promise of this king would be his reign would never cease. Just think about that for a moment. A king whose reign would never cease. Because see, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Emperors come, emperors go. But a kingdom that has no end. What kind of a king could this be? And who might this king rule? We jump into the story. So Luke gives some historical details here, which are very helpful to us, because as we recall in Luke chapter 1, he, he writes to give an, an account. How does he say it? He says, um, it seemed good to me since I carefully investigated everything to you from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence so that you may know the certainty of the things in which you've been instructed. So he includes things like the first registration took place where, where while Quirinius, there we go, was governing Syria, verse 3. So everyone went to his town to be registered, and then we're introduced to Joseph. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David. And he's registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Verse 7 says, Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the lodging place. We've read these words for years, but I want to give you a picture of what this means in rural Judea. Um, imagine you have a 90-mile trip that this young couple is taking. All right, Joseph, uh, Matthew's gospel describes him and Mary as both being righteous. All right, we ran into that with Zachariah and Elizabeth. But they're righteous with a problem because Mary's pregnant and they're engaged. You know, it's the first century equivalent of being engaged. And so they're like, wait, but you're engaged, but wait, you're with child. How do we make sense of this? Because culturally, biblically, for God's people, that was not how you went about things. And so there's a little bit of shame going on in their lives. And, and Joseph, it says in Matthew's gospel, being a righteous man, he, dis, he wanted to divorce her quietly so that, that he didn't disgrace her to an extent that was great. Um, but the angel said, no, I, I want you to take the son. I want the son to become your son. It's not your son. It's, it's been given by the Holy Spirit to this young lady. But Joseph takes that upon himself. And so they, they're in this state where now they have to go. They are expecting a child. And they go back to a place that Joseph probably knew pretty well because he likely had family there. He likely had land there. He needed to go be counted there. And we get some really, you know, small markers in these first few things. You know, we find out that Joseph is from the line of David, a very heralded line. I mean, you say you are from the line of David. You're like, you are a lineage of the king, like the King David. And Bethlehem was, of course, David's hometown. And so, Others would have that as well, but in first century hospitality, these people would take people in. You have a traveler coming by, you, especially one from the line of David, especially one whom you know, you would find every way you can to bring them in and provide them what they needed to be housed and taken care of. 
The in that's talked about here, it's the word kataluma. And it's a word that doesn't mean like an inn that you would stop at while you're traveling, like a Holiday Inn or a Marriott. There's actually a different word for that in Luke's gospel. And it comes in the story of the Good Samaritan passage. We don't need to go there now. But what you need to know is that this describes a room that would often be built onto a, a house. And so what you would have is you'd have essentially a one-room house because at this time, Bethlehem is a village. Don't think of it as downtown Zealand or downtown Holland or downtown Grand Rapids or downtown whatever your town is that you're living in. Um, it, it's not like that. You know, it, it's a small village. It's made up of just maybe a few hundred people. And, and the houses are, are largely one-room houses. You, you would have one dwelling space, and then you'd have a place where you would put your animals. And that would often be attached to your house, because especially during the colder seasons of, of, the, um, of the year, you would want to bring those animals in. You'd want to make sure that no one stole them in the middle of the night, or anything bad happened to them, that they wandered off. You'd also want to make the most of the heat that they provided. So this, this isn't like well-framed out like a builder would be, okay? This doesn't have a mansion of many rooms or anything like that. It's one room, and you'd have a place for the animals that would be on one side of it, and you'd, just, you'd, you'd want to make sure they're good, and you want all the heat from them. So you'd have that, and on the other side of this room roughly, you would have what is called the Cataluma, and that is the guest house. It, it, it's, it's the lodging place is the way the HCSB translates it here, and, and it's a place where if you had someone come, you would want to provide hospitality and say, please stay in my Cataluma. Please stay over here where I have space. But we find out in the story that there is not space. <laughs> You can imagine the town is bustling with a few more people than usual because they're being registered along with all of their fellow kinsfolk there. But while they're there, there's a time for them to give birth. And throughout this, we find just these iconic words. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in snuggly and cloth, and she laid him in this feeding trough because there was no room for them in the lodging place. In other words, family lives here. Trough is over here because this is where the animals are. Over here is the lodging place, and that's all full. And so you have this couple in a small, maybe like nine by nine. That's a rough estimate of how big you'd have for your goat and your sheep and all this kind of stuff. That's where the animals are at normally. That's where this couple is at. In the midst of that, you, you have a, a manger, okay? So if, if your nativity scene, if you have one at home, is like mine, it's like this wooden box that's made, um, likely it's carved into stone. Sometimes these dwelling places were actually, they, they would use like natural caves as much as they could to make the most of um, getting protection from the elements. And so sometimes these, these mangers, these feeding troughs would be carved into the stone themselves, there's not a ton of wood in Israel, but there's, there's a place now for this child to be put securely. And you can kind of get a feeling of how well they care for this child because they wrap him snugly and they laid him there. But in the midst of all this, you know, just contrast that with how a king should be born. It's not how we would look at a king being born. And in fact, to a first or second century reader of this, they would go, how utterly absurd they, they, they placed him in a feeding trough? What kind of a humble and lowly beginning is this for a person whom they call a king? 
Not only that, in verse 8 and following, we are introduced to a group, shepherds. Now, shepherds, they were out in their fields. They were keeping watch at night over their flock. And then they're, they're met by an angel. The angel of the Lord stands before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. It's a pretty common occurrence, as we have seen. But the angel says to them, he says, don't be afraid. Thankful he said that. Because he says, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All right? This message is for all the people, he says. Today, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. So imagine your shepherd. You're taking care of your sheep out on the hills, out in the valleys. You're making sure they have food by day and water. You're making sure that wolves or any other predators don't get them. No one steals them off. And you're confronted with a whole angel choir, because there's going to be a whole song that's sung here. And it's sung not just by a choir, it's sung by a, a, a heavenly host, which is basically a heavenly army. The word host there can be translated army as well. So you have this throng of angels commanding you, hey, here's what's going to happen. And then they're singing and they're praising, and you're a shepherd. Now, at one point in time in Israel's past, shepherding was a very noble career. I mean, David, the king, he was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs were shepherds. At the time of this writing, those shepherds were lowly people, and they were despised. They were people who were looked down upon because what they did was dirty. And what they did was like, ooh, I don't want to do that job. That job is tough, and you're probably ritually unclean, and why don't you guys go over there, and we'll go over here. So imagine you are lowly, you are despised, you are a humble group, and you are confronted with this message today, a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord was born for you. What would you do? What would you do? How would you respond? I mean, the angel said, this Messiah is for all, everybody, but now he's just said, he's for me. I'm the lowliest of the low. I don't have any standing. Emperors, kings, they don't care so much about me as long as I do my job and I don't get in trouble, as long as I pay my taxes. But it's in the midst of this that angels say, a savior is born for you. How might this humble group of shepherds receive this news, being on the bottom end of the social classes? It's something to think about. It's something to think about. Because in this narrative, they're given a promise. Here's where you're going to find. And then the, the angels leave and the shepherds respond in a very interesting way. They go. They, they go. They, they, they don't wait. The text says, when the angels had left and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem. Let's go straight there. Let us see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off, verse 16 says, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough. How appropriate, a feeding trough. Something that they knew well because they're shepherds. They care for sheep. 
Could it be that as they're hearing this promise and this, and this hopeful message from the angels, that today in the city of David, a Savior is born for you? That they go, wow, for me, a shepherd? And as they hear this promise, hey, you're actually going to find him in Bethlehem? And it's going to be with like a feeding trough? They're like, maybe, maybe they're thinking it's my kind of people. You know, I, I know this. Imagine if this baby was born in a palace. Would they have the same passion or the same freedom to go to the palace and celebrate? Now, of course, Jesus came for the rich. He came for the poor. He came for the rulers. He came for the lowly. But imagine you're the poor. And you say, I have a savior who is the anointed one, who is the Lord, a Messiah for all people. One writer writes, the contrast between the birth's commonness and this child's greatness could not be greater. The promised one of God enters creation among the creation. The profane decree of a census has put the child in the promised city of messianic origin because they're in Bethlehem because uh, the Hebrew scriptures foretold that it would come, that the Messiah would come from there. And he writes this, he writes, God is quietly at work and a stable is the Messiah's first throne room. You're the Jewish people and for hundreds of years you've wondered, God, where are you? Because the prophets have ceased, you've been taken off into exile, part of your people has come back. And yet the faithful remnant say, God, where are you? God, when will this Messiah come? And the message comes to lowly shepherds. Galatians 4 says it this way, um, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born unto the law to, law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might be adopted as sons. See, the Messiah comes, comes for the rich, comes for the poor, but he comes for you. I don't know where in that spectrum of social, economic, race, gender, all those things you find yourself, however God has placed you, however God has created and informed you and fashioned you, but wherever you find yourself, I think here's part of the message of Luke chapter two. A savior has been born for you. For you. For you. For me. Why does this story matter? It's a great story to read on Christmas Eve. It's a great way to, to, to guide our hearts and our minds around what God is doing in the world, but why does this story matter? We look around us and we see brokenness everywhere. We're faced every day with the mortality of human life. We're faced with things like prejudice and racism, with anger, with pride, with selfishness. We see people with power who abuse it for their personal gain. And we're reminded frequently that the kingdoms of this world are ample reminders that no one is righteous. As Romans says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. We can see that just by looking at the world around us. 
but in the midst of a first century empire, one in which there is a king who ruled over everything. And when he said jump, you said how high? A different kind of king came. And he didn't come in a palace. He came in a village. He he came in a stable area. His mission was not to conquer and to rule and to reign, although he does rule and reign. But his mission was to save and redeem those who are oppressed, oppressed by sin. His attitude was to be one who serves, not just to be served. See, he calls us to serve him, but the story of Jesus, and especially as you read through Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel frequently reminds us that Jesus goes to people like centurions, people like tax collectors, they weren't well off, um, people who come from a whole host of uh, medical issues like lepers, people who have nothing. Jesus goes to them and he says, I came for And as he does so, he doesn't just say, come serve me, although he does say that. He says, let me show you what it means to serve. And he models for people what godliness is. To serve and not be served. He he calls people to trust in something greater than their government, greater than their leaders, greater than their ability or their financial prowess or their position. He says, I want to call you to trust in me. There's a lot of places we can go to trust. But he says, come, trust in me. See, what Jesus does when he comes to this earth is he, he, he takes what people have, which is really not much of anything, and he makes it something. And in Luke's gospel, this comes so strongly because when you literally have nothing, or literally when you have everything in a material way, you recognize you're still insufficient. A tax collector like Zacchaeus, who has gobs of money, who has tons of power, is met by Jesus in Luke 19. And he comes before Jesus and he says, I've sinned. I've sinned. I have not treated people how I should. And he repents of his sin and he turns to Jesus. And the stories go on in Luke's gospel. But the message is, Jesus came for them. See, this message is for, for all people. And in the context, originally, there's this messianic announcement. You know, the Jewish people expected a Messiah. And they would know that this would be for the people of Israel and, and that the Messiah would come to save and deliver Israel. But as we go through Luke and Acts, Luke and Acts are two books that are tied together most likely by the same author. In these two volumes, we find out the story of Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, who brings salvation to all people, regardless of their nationality or where they've come from. All they need to do is turn to him. Acts 3 says it this way, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Why does the story of Christmas matter? The story of Christmas is not amazing because it's a warm, fuzzy story of the birth of a baby. It's amazing because God enters humanity and he becomes flesh. 
He fulfills his promises to his people, and he establishes and completes a plan to bring redemption to humanity. What do you think of when you hear those words, today, a Savior, a Messiah, who is the Lord, is born for you? I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. That's the message of the birth of Jesus, though. Wherever you find yourself today, you can come to faith in Jesus by trusting in his life and in his work and in his death and his resurrection alone because he came for you. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, you have come for us You have not left us in a world filled with sin. God, because of your love for us, because of your compassion, because of your mercy, you sent your son to this earth. God, becoming man, to live a sinless life, to show us what it means to love you, And God, to give us a way to be made right with you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would forgive us of our sins. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is listening today. If they don't have a relationship with you through faith in your son, that by faith, by trusting in your work, God, that they would place all their sin, all the things which have separated us and them from you and God, that they would come to faith in Jesus. You say, God, in the book of John, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, will not perish but have eternal life. And God, it's eternal life that we need today in a world filled with a lot of tough stuff. God, we need the life that comes only through Jesus. Thank you, God, for a story that reminds us that whoever we are and wherever we are, you love us and you call us. You call us to follow you. Help us to do that today by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Love the, the words of this, uh, one, one of these hymns we're about ready to sing. It says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. Christmas carols have just some fantastic theology about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so I invite you to sing this with us.